today when your pastor asked me if I'd come today and speak on the feeding of the 5,000 from John's Gospel. And I must admit, I probably thought to myself, I'd rather do my Obadiah sermon because uh, statistically you won't have heard too many sermons on Obadiah, but you've probably heard lots on this. But it is a great passage of scripture to look at today. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a lady in our church who was our youth leader at one time. Her name's Lizzie Booth. I don't know if any of, any of you know her. But she lived in our house with us for about a year. So I know her quite well and she knows me. And she said to me, Dee Dee, that's what she calls me. I'm Dave Downer, by the way, from the community church at Overton. And uh, she said, Dee Dee, What's God saying to you at the moment? So, I thought for just a moment and I said, well, what's on my mind and on my prayers at the moment is this. It's the difference between knowing Jesus, knowing God and knowing about him. And that's, I'm actually exercised about that at the moment. And uh, I've, I've been reminded of a song that we're going to sing at the end that probably came out in the 70s called The Greatest Thing in All My Life is Knowing You. And I, I sing this to myself. Or, well, I sing it to the Lord, but I sing it by myself, shall I say, sometimes when I'm just sort of walking in the morning. The greatest thing in all my life. And it, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. I say is that really my greatest thing? Is that, is that what motivates me more than anything else? So I make this a prayer. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. So when I got this message from your pastor, Dave, um, and he said, this is, we're doing this, we're looking at Jesus and to explore what it means to know him, I thought, hmm, that's rather timely. I'm not sure I've learnt it all yet, but um, I'm excited to just have that banner over us as we look at this passage today. Unusually for uh, any biblical sort of event, it's actually in all four of the Gospels. Now, if any four people reported back on anything, I don't know if you ever watched a football match and seen the two managers report back on it. I think, were they watching the same game? There's other reasons why they do that. But in this case, they're all giving faithful reports, but all from slightly different angles. But in particular, you could say that Matthew, Mark and Luke's accounts in this case are really very, very similar. But John, as often, carries a different flavour. And uh, we are going to just dip into some of the other Gospels, but not too much because I want to be faithful to this particular passage. But let's read it together. Um, John 6, 1 to 15. And this is going up on the screen. So, sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? 
He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down and about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, come into the world. Sorry, they didn't say that. They said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Sorry about that, jumped a line there. It's really good to be here with you today, by the way, and uh, quite a few familiar faces, a few unfamiliar ones as well. Um, In J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament, and particularly his introduction to John's Gospel, he says it's quite plain that this Gospel In this gospel, we're breathing a very different atmosphere from that of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Many years ago, I did a relatively quick read through John. And what came over to me particularly was his passion for the Father. And as he goes through the book, it seemed to me he was introducing more and more about his Father and the fact that we could know him intimately. I don't know if any of you read Word for Today, but funnily enough, that was on this subject this morning. And it made the point that the the people of Jesus' day found it hard to grasp a concept of God as Father. Lord, King, Judge, yep, they could cope with that. But actually it was quite a step for them to see that God was actually a loving father. And I think John in this book is really something he really wants us to know. And I mentioned actually when I was here about, I don't know, 18 months ago or so, that that, that the sort of final bit of that is when uh, Mary uh, meets Jesus after the resurrection. He says, Mary, you go to... You go and tell them uh, about my father and their father. He's actually saying to them that actually, yeah, God is my father, but he's also your father too. And that is just such a, a wonderful thing. So that's part of what John is doing in this gospel. But he also, he has particular signs as he goes through the gospel. You remember the story of the water into wine? Well, that, that it says, was the first sign. And the healing of the official son was the second sign. And there are other signs which biblical scholars 
can identify, but John only gives clues as to what those are. Except in this case, he does also, in that last verse, he said, this is a sign. And if you want to identify them through, this is about sign number five. But it means it's a particularly significant event. It's one of the signs that Jesus is ushering in something new. If, when we get to the first verse, and we'll look at all these verses again, or verse, maybe verse three, John particularly mentions it's Passover time. And another thing about John's gospel, most of the events take place around Jerusalem. And he makes the point that this is around Passover time. And surely he is wanting us to make a connection here. A connection that Passover was celebrating the escape from Egypt. And what followed on from that was the time in the wilderness and how Jesus fed the people with, with, with bread from heaven, with manna that appeared every day. And he wants us to see this connection with this story here. But Jesus is doing it again, but he's doing it new. There's something different about this. Jesus is ushering in a new exodus, a new creation, a new order of things. And he wants us to see this. And of course, if we read on in the chapter, which you may be getting to in a few weeks or whatever, it's in, Jesus introduces himself as the bread of heaven. He's catered for their physical needs, but he wants them to know that there's a greater need and Jesus is here to fulfil it. So we're going to now move on and uh, look at this sort of each section at a time. So that first bit was sort of by way, in one sense, of introduction. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 again. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples and the Jewish Passover festival was near. We see that Jesus has an ability to draw a huge crowd, doesn't he? The way they numbered things in those days, you may be aware, was they just numbered the men. Wouldn't go down well in our society today, would it? But they, that, you know, it's estimated there could have been 15,000 people. I mean, if 5,000 isn't a big enough miracle, there are actually more people than that, lots of people. Jesus surely draws a crowd. And if we look at verse 1, there's some words here. It says, sometime after this. Well, you might say, well, after what? Well, like in John, obviously, it's what was previously said. But it, it, it sort of shows there's a, there's a time lapse in between. And if we do just dip into Matthew's Gospel, we find this is a time, actually. What actually preceded this was the death of John the Baptist, who was a relative, friend, forerunner of Jesus. And Jesus was obviously very, very tender about this. And uh, the other Gospels make, make a point that Jesus actually wanted to seek, with, maybe with his disciples, but a solitary place. And doesn't that fit in with how we are at times of great tenderness, times of bereavement, 
it's good to have a few close people around, maybe family and some close friends, but we don't actually, we're not actually looking for a crowd, are we, at those times? And Jesus had his own needs at that time, time to think about his friend, John the Baptist, time to grieve, yet here he is with compassion for the crowd. Not normally a time, is it, for us that we want to be giving out, but Jesus was ready to give out. And uh, I think, you know, it just shows his compassion for this crowd. We've covered the point about verse 4 about the Jewish Passover festival uh, was, was close by. So let's move on to verses 5 to 7. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it will take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. John here touches on Jesus' relationship with his disciples. So there's some clues here, I think, about knowing Jesus. This is all about relationship. Philip, I've got a question for you. I wonder, how did you feel when you read that, when it said, he did this only to test him? I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. When I first read that, sort of a little bit of a negative feeling came up in me, and I thought, hmm, a bit harsh. What are you about here, Jesus? But of course, I hadn't quite got my understanding in gear. I wasn't, I wasn't knowing my Jesus at that point, was I? Jesus, you know, we're happy to sing what a friend we have in Jesus, but if we really know him as a friend, we won't be worried by his questions. We won't be worried by his tests even. Because he's got a goal, hasn't he, for us. He's got a goal to take us through things. In fact, it's outlined very much by Paul when he says that the goal is, I want to present you mature in Christ. That's my goal for you. He said, I'm confident that Christ who started a work in you is going to bring it to completion. And that ain't going to happen without tests, questions, trials. We know these things. I was talking about this to my, uh, my dear wife, Jeanette, and um, she said to me, you know, that came to me as a revelation. You know what we mean by revelation? The way the light comes on, I suddenly saw it. And we were quite young when unexpectedly we were called to lead a church and, you know, that offers various challenges and uh, wives get involved. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think she was struggling a bit with some of the the difficulties, the load, the people that wanted her attention, the, 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 the... the things that needed her help in getting through. And uh, she was feeling the, the strain of it. And this came as a revelation to her 
that everything she was going through was for her good, not for her harm. James says it, doesn't it? And this was a significant verse for her. Welcome various trials. Perseverance must finish its work. And I think Jesus here, he knows that the disciples are going to be the next ones doing the job. He's going away. He knows that this is a temporary situation of him being with his disciples, albeit it was a good long time, it was a good time of training, his three years of ministry, but it was not going to last forever. They would need to be strong, they would need to be trained, they would go through tests on their own. They needed to go through a few while he was here. If we really know Jesus, we shouldn't be frightened or put off, just as Ah, my little reaction there. We know, we can trust him as we've been singing this morning. Trust him totally that he always wants the best for us. Says you don't have to do anything particular to get old. Time looks after that. When you get to my age, you don't like statements like that too much. (laughs) But it's true. But to become mature... That's a different matter. But Jesus is going to see it through for us. Hallelujah. But in our quest, let's just ask ourselves this question. In our quest to know God more, are we prepared for tests with the goal of us going on to maturity? I ask myself the question, how did John even know what Jesus was doing here? Whoever John was, whether it was the apostle who wrote this book or not, he obviously knew Jesus really well, didn't he? How did he know what Jesus was thinking here, I wonder? I wonder if he talked to Jesus afterwards and said, yeah, why did you do it? Why did you put it that way? Why did you do that to test Philip? Or did he just know Jesus that well? I'm sure he'd gone through his own tests and challenges. He probably knew Jesus so well, he knew what was going on. When we know Jesus more, I think we recognise these times more easily. Let's go on to verse 8. By the way, I love the bit in verse 7 when he says, uh, wouldn't be enough there for them to have a bite to eat. We use that term, don't we? Let's have a bite to eat. But I think Jesus was planning more than a bite in this case. Verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Seems in the crowd there was one little boy with a backpack. Insignificant, actually, he was in the culture. He's not even numbered in the 5,000, is he? Because it was 5,000 men. But he wasn't insignificant to God. He wasn't insignificant to Jesus. But I wonder what this little boy thought about giving up his lunch. Have you ever been in a position where you've got to give up your lunch? I mean, I like my lunch, don't you? (laughs) I wonder what he thought about it. We can only speculate. I wonder if any reassurances were given by the disciples. Look, if you give this to Jesus, it'll be all right. I mean, I'm not sure they thought it would be all right at the time. So, I don't know. 
Maybe, and I'm only speculating, it's one of those things that fit in with what Jesus said about becoming like a little child. Maybe he actually thought it was going to be all right. He'd heard about Jesus, heard about the miracles, seen what Jesus could do and was quite happy to give up his lunch. But I asked myself the question, would I have been happy? But one thing I'm sure about, he went home chuffed to bits. Don't you reckon he went home chuffed to bits? Ha! Look what happened to my lunch! Ah, what it is when we give over something to God. Actually, aren't you chuffed to bits when you do that thing? Simple thing. Invite someone to an alpha and they say yes. How does that feel? Just have an opportunity to share something of the goodness of Jesus with someone. Wow, it costs us at the time, doesn't it? It's not always easy. But how do we feel afterwards? Chuffed to bits. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. What an interesting little bit of detail. I don't think that's in any of the other Gospels. There was plenty of grass. I wonder what John is thinking there. But we'd say, well, plenty of grass, nice place for a picnic, wouldn't we? And that's what they were having. Anyway, there was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Now at this point, I will say there is a significant difference between this gospel account and the other three gospel accounts. Because in the other gospel accounts, they all record that Jesus broke the bread and the fish, gave it to the disciples to give to the people. And this is great preaching material. I've heard, I don't know if you've heard of the German evangelist Reinhard Bonker, but I've heard him preach on this. Make a big deal, and not necessarily wrongly, about the fact that it was actually put into the hands of the disciples. So the The food must have grown in the disciples' hands. But I want to concentrate more on this and say, well, why did John ignore that? But what I will say first is, if you do want something, you're not finding me at all inspiring this morning, and you want to have another little take on the feeding of the 5,000 when you get home or in your house groups or whatever, just Google Robert Morris feeding of the 5,000, Robert Morris, and you'll have a very entertaining and thought-provoking 10 minutes on the feeding of the 5,000. I must admit, I giggled all the way through it, and I haven't got any jokes in this message this morning, but so you can have a laugh when you watch that. But as well as a laugh, it's a sort of, there's also a serious message in it, but it is, it is worth watching. But it's not the take we're doing this morning. John's take is different. And I'm asking myself, why? If that's what actually happened, why is Jesus, why is John just said, well, Jesus gave thanks, 
he got the disciples involved in the sitting down of the crowd, but, you know, why did he not put it this way? Well, I'll tell you what I think as I've reflected on this. Jesus, in any case, was the miracle worker. There's no question about that. And I think John is just so Jesus-centred and Jesus-focused and so wants to give the glory to Jesus that that's all that John actually sees. You know, it's so easy, isn't it? If I was a disciple and it had been put in my hands and I saw it grow in my hands, I'd be wanting a bit of glory for myself there, I think. It would have been very exciting and it's probably what happened because three accounts say that's the case. But John is only interested in Jesus. And I I really think there's a lesson for us there. Do you ever want a bit of glory? I find myself wanting a bit of glory and then rebuking myself afterwards. So easy, isn't it? But I think John, and I think it comes out throughout the whole of his gospel, he's just so Jesus-centred. There's a man that's meant a lot in my life, right, going right back to 1969, and a little bit before that, but when I first came to Basingstoke, and his name was Barney Coombs. And he was the leader of Salt and Light Ministries, which Basingstoke Community Churches, which I'm part of, was part of. And he was, if you like, the founder. He was a worldwide preacher and uh, wrote books and he's influenced many, many, many lives and churches for good. I, I can personally thank him for the influence he's made in my life. And just two weeks ago, I went to his Thanksgiving service in Oxford. There was also one in Vancouver because he lived in Canada and he died recently. But I remember some of his teaching from those years in the 1970s. And I would have said it was a lot of the things that we take for granted today teachings on the body of Christ and relationships and every member functioning and all those things. But at the time, it was sort of quite new. And I believe, you know, he was a great contributor to many of the things that we take for granted today. But he had ten building principles for church life. And number one, I was reminded at this Thanksgiving service just two Sunday nights ago was this. Christ at the centre. And I think that was the key. That was the key to his ministry. It was the key to, if you like, what was successful. Christ at the centre. And we can never, never move away from that. And John certainly doesn't. But what is there else to say about this? Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. Five loaves and two fish. What is that amongst so many? Jesus blessed what was not enough. And he gave thanks for it. I think there's a lesson for us here, a message 
for us. We need to be thankful for what we have that's not enough and ask God to increase it. Whether that's the things in our, that we're praying about in our lives, in our families, in our work, in our mission to share Jesus. What have we got that feels not enough, that feels inadequate, that just won't do on its own? And can we offer that and be thankful for it as Jesus was and ask him to bless it and multiply it? I'm nearly done now, but we're getting to verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Just notice there, it looks like they ate all the fish, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I don't like seeing food wasted. It seems Jesus didn't either, because he actually says, here, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And actually what happened to them, I guess we can only speculate a little bit. Did they go off in the boat with the disciples, because that's what happened next? We don't absolutely know. But I think the point here is... And it says so in the other three Gospels. Everybody ate and was satisfied. That's what it says. They ate and were satisfied. It was good. You know, I uh, have the privilege every, on a regular basis on a Tuesday morning of just going to pray with one, of the, one a man in our church. He's a lovely guy. And we just go for half an hour and pray together. And... Uh, He also, which is lovely, it's purely something he likes to do. He bakes me a loaf of bread, fresh bread. And boy, it's good. And then I usually go into the shop, buy the milk, put the bread on the counter and say, just the milk, I brought the bread in. And she sniffs it and says, oh, it doesn't smell good. And I tell you, that bread is good. And I tell you, this bread was good here too. I believe that this bread was good. You know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, what was it was said about the wine? It was the best. And I, I reckon this was the best too. This was the best. And this speaks, this whole bit speaks of God's abundance and generosity. Do we know that our God, our Jesus, is abundant and generous. He's abundant in his goodness. When Paul talks about the grace of God, it says it's been lavished on us. Think of, you know, you're buttering a bit of bread or marmalade or whatever and there's no stinginess about this. It's thick, lavished. And that's Jesus. The food that he produced, there was a lavish amount. You know, when, I was thinking too, just this morning, of the parable of the forgiving, uh, or the unforgiving servant, we did it in Open the Book the other day, didn't we? 
And apparently, when the, when, the, when the king first forgave the servant, and it was 10,000 talents, I was told once that a talent they had to bring in in a wheelbarrow. It was that big. 10,000 talents was just a ridiculous amount of money, just a ridiculous debt. But that's, just, that's what Jesus does to demonstrate his generosity of forgiveness. When we get to know Jesus more, we're going to find out he's more and more generous and lavish in his goodness. So to close, let's just ask ourselves a few questions just to think about as we close and pray through this story. I hope something might have registered with someone. I hope God is uh, speaking to us as we go through this. And we're going to pray that he does. Firstly, do we know Jesus? And do we want to know him more? Is that a heart cry? I want that heart cry to continue in me. I want to know you more. I'm going to discover more and more of your wonder as I know you more. How good you are. Do we know that Jesus wants us to become mature in him and this is going to involve pushing through challenges, difficulties, some tests, some questions, some challenges along the way? Is Jesus at the centre? What have we that's not enough in itself but that we can give him to bless and multiply are we giving thanks for what we have to offer which is not enough? And do we know that God is abundantly generous in his love, grace and forgiveness and his provision? Father, God, we want to thank you for sending Jesus amongst us. Thank you for all that he did, all that he demonstrated. And we know that this was this was came to the most marvelous event of all. Your death for us on the cross, whereby we can have forgiveness of our sins. And through that to come to know him and know the Father intimately. Thank you again for your word and for all that it teaches and help us to learn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.